0: Welcome to Legal Ethics in the News, a podcast series from the New York City Bar Association featuring Stephen Gillers and Barbara S. Gillers discussing legal ethics issues making headlines in the legal or mainstream media. Stephen is the Elihu Root Professor of Law, and Barbara is an adjunct professor of law, both at New York University School of Law. In this episode, can a prosecutor refuse all abortion cases? And if indicted, can Trump rely on the advice of counsel? Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here are Barbara Gillers and Stephen Gillers. Hi, I'm
1: Barbara Gillers.
2: I'm Stephen Gillers.
1: This is our podcast, Legal Ethics in the News.
2: Every few weeks, we will discuss current legal ethics issues in the news.
1: By Legal Ethics, we include adjacent topics, including the attorney-client privilege and substantive law doctrines like fiduciary duty, where the focus is regulation of the conduct of lawyers.
2: The issues may come from a bar ethics opinion, a court case, a story in the legal or or popular press, or a suggestion from you. You can send
1: suggestions to this address, legalethicspodcast at
2: nycbar.org we we will post some of the sources we mention in our podcast or citations to them on the city bar site accompanying the podcast you can also get our podcasts wherever you get your other podcasts google spotify apple etc for this our
1: 18th podcast we cover two topics we first discuss whether prosecutors would violate the rules of professional conduct if they promised not to enforce anti-abortion statutes. Next, we turn to whether Donald Trump can defeat a criminal prosecution by claiming reliance on the advice of counsel.
2: In June 2022, about 80 elected prosecutors nationwide issued a statement in which they said they will not enforce laws against abortion. The announcement, which is in the materials accompanying this podcast, was released by an organization called Fair and Just Prosecution, or FJP.
1: FJP describes itself as bringing together elected local prosecutors as part of a network of leaders committed to promoting a justice system grounded in fairness, equity, compassion, and fiscal responsibility.
2: Since June, more elected prosecutors have signed on the statement. As of now, there are about 100 signers.
1: The three-page statement says, quote, We stand together in our firm belief that prosecutors have a responsibility to refrain from using limited criminal legal system resources to criminalize personal medical decisions. As such, we decline to use our office's resources to criminalize reproductive health decisions and commit to exercise our well-settled discretion and refrain from prosecuting those who seek, provide, or support
2: abortions. And it goes on to say, prosecutors make decisions every day about how to allocate limited resources and which cases to prosecute. As elected prosecutors, we have a responsibility to ensure that these limited resources are focused on efforts to prevent and address serious crimes. Enforcing abortion bans would mean taking time, effort, and resources away from the prosecution of the most serious crimes.
1: The statement also explains that, that, quote, enforcing abortion bans runs counter to the obligations and interests we are sworn to uphold. It will erode trust in the legal system, hinder our ability to hold perpetrators accountable, take resources away from the enforcement of serious crime, and inevitably lead to the re-traumatization and criminalization of victims of sexual
2: violence. So the question inevitably arises, Could prosecutors, whether elected or appointed, decline to enforce laws which we will assume are constitutional for the purpose of this question on the ground that they disagree with the decision to enact those laws?
1: So we're now talking about a categorical refusal to enforce a law because a prosecutor believes it should not be a law.
2: The clients of prosecutors are the people or the state of, and the client, through its legislature, has decided to criminalize particular conduct.
1: So can a prosecutor just say she disagrees with and categorically will not enforce a particular law?
2: The professional conduct rules say that the goals of a representation, including whether to sue, are ordinarily for the client, while the choice of means to achieve those goals is for the lawyer. Rule 1.2a of the ABA model rules says, quote, A lawyer shall abide by a client's decisions concerning the objectives of representation.
1: So here, the prosecutors could be said to be overriding the client's decision expressed through the laws
2: about its goals. This assumes, however, that the client is the state or the people. How about if the client is the county in which the prosecutor works? and the voters from it who elected her.
1: Uh, Prosecutors who are elected after a campaign in which they pledged not to enforce the abortion law can point to the support of their constituents.
2: Let's assume that the prosecutors were elected after Dobbs. Can a county's voters, through their votes for a local prosecutor, override a state law the prosecutor is charged to enforce?
1: How would that affect the state's interest in its law being forced statewide? For example, in Georgia, at least seven local prosecutors have said they will not enforce the Georgia abortion law.
2: That law, which the 11th Circuit has put into effect immediately, bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy and expands the definition of a natural person to include, quote, an unborn child. The law has some definitions and some exceptions.
1: Let's assume that the prosecutors who have said they will not enforce this law come from urban areas and university towns where we can assume the population supports their
2: decision. As a consequence, the Georgia abortion law will be enforced in some parts of Georgia but not in other parts of Georgia which may undermine its goals because a Georgia resident seeking an abortion can choose to use a provider in, for example, Atlanta or Athens without fear of a prosecution.
1: The statement makes clear that resource allocations inform the decisions, but the statement also says that the decisions are driven in part by the signer's opposition to the laws that criminalize abortion.
2: Compare a categorical decision that is arguably different from the one here.
1: A former Manhattan DA declined to prosecute fair beating on public transportation and possession of small amounts of marijuana.
2: That decision, although also categorical, can more obviously be seen as about resource allocation, not ideology.
1: The issue here is about resources too, but it is also apparently ideological. However, there is a precedent.
2: The issue arose in New York, and perhaps elsewhere, over the death penalty. When the death penalty was still available in New York, prosecutors decided in each death-eligible case whether or not to seek it.
1: A police officer was killed in the line of duty. New York Governor George Pataki asked the Bronx District Attorney Robert Johnson if he intended to seek the death penalty.
2: Johnson declined to say. Johnson had previously implied that he would never seek the death penalty.
1: Pataki took the case away from Johnson and assigned it to the state attorney general as the law allowed.
2: Johnson went to court to prevent Pataki's action, but an intermediate appellate court found the governor's discretionary decision was not subject to judicial review.
1: It wrote, quote, In furtherance of his constitutional mandate to see that the laws of New York are faithfully executed, the governor's apparent objective was to assure that those laws are being applied in a uniform fashion throughout the state's 62 counties.
2: Quote, the wide discretionary authority that any district attorney does retain in executing the heavy, heavy responsibilities of his office must be held subservient to that overriding interest.
1: The defendant died awaiting trial, so the issue became moot.
2: Compare Robert Morgenthau, the district attorney for Manhattan, who, like Johnson, was elected.
1: During this period, unlike Johnson, Morgenthau did not say or imply that he would never seek the death penalty.
2: But as it happened, He never did seek the death penalty.
1: No governor sought to displace him during his long tenure as Manhattan DA.
2: One consideration that may have influenced both Morgenthau and Johnson is the improbability that any jury in their respective counties would sentence a defendant to death. That reality supports a resources-based decision not to seek the death penalty. The same can be said for abortion prosecutions in many progressive parts of the country.
1: So, how might lawmakers respond to the FJP
2: statement? In some states, perhaps, the governor can do what Pataki did and reassign the case Or if the governor does not now have that power, the legislature might create it.
1: In fact, just today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended the prosecutor in Hillsborough County, which includes Tampa, who has signed the FJP statement. NBC News reports, quote, Flanked by state and area law enforcement officials who are fellow Republicans, DeSantis said at his news conference that Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren was neglecting his official duties and was essentially usurping the veto power of a governor by signaling his refusal to prosecute
2: those who break laws with which he disagrees. At the news conference, DeSantis said, quote, When you flagrantly violate your oath of office, When you make yourself above the law, you have violated your duty, DeSantis said. Quote, you have neglected your duty and you are displaying a lack of competence to be able to perform those duties.
1: Other states might do what Texas and some other states have done and give individuals standing to seek civil damages from doctors who perform abortions in violation of the state law. It's it's an open question whether those laws will survive challenge, of course.
2: A legislature might bypass the prosecutor in another way. It can authorize, authorize revocation of a doctor's medical license.
1: Yeah, and there could be other reactions. We might expect to see anti-abortion activists filing disciplinary complaints against the prosecutors who signed the pledge.
2: That may already have happened, although no such filing has yet become public, so far as we know.
1: You know, it seems that the prosecutors who signed the statement might have been better off by not announcing a policy and instead acting on it silently like Robert Morgenthau did with the death penalty.
2: Maybe some who did not sign abstained for that very reason, they'll, they'll just follow the Morgenthau example. So there's a conundrum for prosecutors.
1: Silence may protect them, but it would deny women and clinics the comfort that seeking or performing an abortion in the prosecutor's jurisdictions will not lead to prosecution. On the other hand, a categorical announcement risks a backlash from legislators, governors, and possibly anti-abortion
2: activists. We, We will follow developments here. It is more than likely that the prosecutor's statement will have some repercussions. We just can't be sure what they will be or where they will appear.
1: If you follow the debate over whether Donald Trump should be indicted and what his defenses might be, there is one narrow legal issue that often arises.
2: It comes up in discussions of whether a prosecution can prove Trump's criminal intent beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: Did he have the state of mind that the obstruction statutes require? or the incitement statute, or to prove seditious conspiracy.
2: There is circumstantial evidence from which a jury could find beyond a reasonable doubt that he did.
1: Indeed, absent a confession, intent, and other states of mind, whether in civil or criminal cases, is usually proved by circumstantial evidence.
2: Contrary to popular belief, circumstantial evidence, depending on its quantity and quality can be more powerful than the direct evidence of, say, a single eyewitness whose credibility can be challenged.
1: One defense idea that has been tossed about is whether Trump will be able to rely on the advice of counsel.
2: If a lawyer tells a business person, for example, that certain conduct is lawful, and the client is then indicted for engaging in that conduct, the client can defend by citing her honest reliance on the advice of her counsel.
1: The advice may be wrong, the lawyer may have been sloppy, but if a jury credits the explanation, it can mean that the client did not intend to break the law. She was misled.
2: While the advice of counsel defense won't work for violent crimes, it does appear in white-collar prosecutions where the legality or illegality of the conduct may not be obvious, making counsel's advice necessary.
1: After all, we do want people to get legal advice in these circumstances.
2: In Trump's case, there has been speculation that he might point to advice from attorneys John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell and other lawyers that led him honestly to believe that his conduct was lawful, even if, as it turns out, it was not. Of course,
1: others, including White House counsel and the Attorney General, contradicted that
2: advice. But what is to stop Trump from saying that he relied on the advice of the first group of lawyers, and then arguing that their advice creates a reasonable doubt about his intent.
1: Now, we're not talking here about the credibility of the defense, only whether it would be available at all, whether a jury will even be able to weigh it.
2: The answer is theoretically yes, but practically no.
1: To advance the defense, we think Trump would have to testify that he in fact, relied on the advice of counsel and say whose advice?
2: We don't think it would suffice to have the lawyers who allegedly gave the advice raise that defense by testifying that they did.
1: This is about Trump's intent, and Trump would have to cite the advice of counsel and say what he believed.
2: In other words... What Eastman or Giuliani or Powell said to Trump is irrelevant under Federal Rule of Evidence 401, which excludes evidence that cannot make a difference to the issues before the court.
1: Who cares what advice the lawyers gave unless Trump actually relied on it, and Trump would have to testify that he did.
2: But even if a judge were to rule the other way and allow the testimony of the lawyers alone, without Trump's testimony, to create an advice of counsel defense, the probative value of their testimony would be nearly nil.
1: It might even be rejected under Rule 403. Which allows a judge in her discretion to reject, reject even relevant evidence if its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of confusing the issues or
2: misleading the jury. If, nonetheless, Trump did manage to inject an advice of counsel defense to create doubt about, about his intent, he will thereby waive any privilege for communications with his lawyers on the subject of their alleged advice.
1: Courts say you can't cite the advice of counsel and then assert the privilege when the opposing side may want the testimony of that very counsel. What exactly did those lawyers tell Trump?
2: So whether or not the issue is raised through Trump's testimony or without it, The lawyers will have to testify and confirm exactly what advice they gave Trump. The privilege will be unavailable.
1: The January 6th committee has already produced evidence to suggest that some of Trump's lawyers had no basis for any such advice and may even have recognized that it was wrong.
2: So it should be obvious that indictments of Trump or his lawyers and others close to him may showcase the operation of the privilege, the rules of professional conduct, and the federal rules of evidence. We will watch for it. Stay, Stay tuned.
1: That's our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Find citations and other materials mentioned in this podcast at the program's page at nycbar.org podcasts. Have you seen or heard a topic in the news that you think the Gillers should consider covering? Email legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. The Gillers do not provide ethics advice to individual lawyers. Lawyers admitted to practice in New York with a question about their own prospective conduct under the New York rules may receive informational guidance by calling the City Bar's ethics hotline at 212-382-6663. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was recorded on August fourth, twenty twenty two, and produced by Alex Cardaras.